0: all right welcome everyone to today's uh, greenhouse environmental humanities book talk this is our last one of the spring 2020 um, semester Um, we're so excited that this has been so well received over these corona times Um, but we will be continuing in the fall so we hope that you'll join us then Um, today we have Paul Hubner who is going to present to us Nature's Broken Clocks, Reimagining Time in the Face of the Environmental Crisis. So we'll give it over to you, Paul.
1: Okay, thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. I think I see about 28 people online. I really appreciate you coming. Uh, So hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, it's, It's a great series of talks you've been running, and I'm really grateful to be here. So thanks so much for inviting me. Um, in Canada, we often begin our events with a territorial land acknowledgement. So I want to recognize that the book I'm talking about today was written um, partly in Calgary on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region and the home of the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And it was partly written in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Stalo, and tsleil Nations. Uh, So the intention of this acknowledgement is to show recognition of indigenous peoples, and it's meant to serve as one small step in challenging uh, the legacies of colonialism. Um, So the book that I'm talking about, Nature's Broken Clocks, is about building a critical understanding of time and the environment. In the age of climate change and ecological collapse, the need to understand how time works in the environment is more important than ever. Um, The habitats of trees are shifting north more quickly than the trees can spread their seeds. Uh, Animals that used to be active during the day are becoming nocturnal in order to avoid us. Uh, And of course, the climate enters newer and stranger forms of breakdown. Despite this though, the narratives circulating within our lives, the everyday ways that we have for imagining time are, in some cases, failing us. Um, We can't seem to grasp the slow sequence of events between carbon emissions and the resulting heat, but we also have trouble coping with the shockingly fast onset of climate disasters. And our visions of time even affect our own bodies. We go about our daily work, as though electric lights and connected phones make the setting of the sun irrelevant, but our bodies crave nightly darkness and sleep. The figurative clocks all around us, so the forms of time within ecosystems and human cultures alike, contain great potential for imaginative responses and reconstruction. Um, so, like it or not, we are all clockmakers, in a sense, faced with this task of rebuilding our knowledge of environmental time. And this is a prospect both terrifying and exhilarating. So, Nature's Broken Clocks, here's the book, it examines <laughs> how, uh, how the clocks of nature and culture uh, have become broken. And it shows how we can approach the environment through... Um, what I call a critical literacy of the temporal imagination. My hope and intention is that readers of the book will expand their ability to reimagine time. In the book, I combine a few different approaches uh, to develop what I call eco-critical time studies. One chapter looks at ecology and scientific understandings of time in the environment. Um, For example, spring is now arriving earlier in the year and um, certain bird species uh, such as purple martins in North America have been migrating too late. So the insects they need to eat are already gone by the time they arrive. They didn't make it in time because spring arrived earlier than they expected. So we need to understand The temporalities of ecosystems and how our own actions in terms of carbon emissions and so on uh, can alter those timing patterns. When it comes to how we understand time though, we don't just encounter time through the lens of science. We understand time inevitably and fundamentally through metaphor. Uh, The metaphorical notions that time moves or pursues, or even the idea that time changes things, these are built into our consciousness. Even science articles convey aspects of time through metaphors, uh, diagrams, charts, and graphs, images of corks, screws, spaceships, bouncing balls, funnels, they're all metaphors. Figurative thinking forms the essence of our explanations of time. So if we want to think carefully about time, we should read the published body of work by our leading experts on metaphorical thought. This, of course, is poetry. So in the book, I show how we can read actual poetry about time, and I also ask us to see the clock as a kind of poem. I'll read a couple of paragraphs about that. The image of the clock then takes us in two directions. On the one hand, the clock stands in as the perfect figure for the quest to understand and control the flow of time. Even in a cultural world that is continuously being made over within the processes of globalization, automation, and electronic networking, the centuries old notion of the clock still remains the ubiquitous symbol for the human experience and management of time. The poetry of the clock is so successful, so useful, that we read and reread its metaphors each day. The time is 11 o'clock, the time is 6.45. The imaginative leap that we take when we read a clock is as familiar, as effortless, as reaching for a light switch in the half dark. Your body already knows the motion that will illuminate the room. The clock comforts us with clarity and purpose in a bewildering world and this comfort deserves to be valued. It is the comfort of knowing a language or having a name. On the other hand, the perfect singularity of the clock makes the image madly inadequate for representing the fluctuations of time within the living Pulsing irregular world of storms and droughts, hummingbirds and glaciers, poverty and wealth, grief and love. The flawless mirror of the clock can never truly reflect living beings. As the supreme icon of time, the clock has always been both elegant and broken. In order to become critical readers of time, We can push push further on the notion of the clock. And uh, Michelle Bastian at the University of Edinburgh has created a wonderful definition of the clock that I find very useful. She says, a clock is a device that signals change. The full definition is that a clock is a device that signals change in order for its users to maintain an awareness of what is significant to them and be able to coordinate themselves with what is significant to them. It's a great definition. And one of the reasons that it's so illuminating is that it could almost just as easily serve as a definition for narrative. What is a narrative if not a device that signals change in some way that is significant to us? We soon find that every narrative, every story is a clock and even that every object around us can be understood as a kind of clock. In its own way, just about any consumer product and indeed anything whatsoever ticks out a particular beat. A slice of cheddar cheese is a clock that signals the slow erosion of the caves at the village of Cheddar in Somerset the evolving history of dairy farm agriculture, the maturing process for aging the cheese, the climate disruptions caused by methane from the cows, and the accelerative market forces of globalization. By Bastian's definition, the only thing that stands in the way of our understanding every object as a clock is our own consciousness. As soon as we see the ballpoint pan or the shrink-wrapped cucumber as a signal of the temporality of plastic, it becomes a device that operates in order for us to maintain an awareness. We might expand Bastian's definition by suggesting that every object, every action, every process functions as a clock in waiting, even if we don't notice it. The fact that our orientation toward time is shaped not just through watches and clocks, but through any object we might stumble across, is a parallel to the way that our temporal imaginations are shaped, not just through the elegant gear wheels of poetry, but through the stories we encounter daily in such mundane places as advertisements and and political news releases. An object doesn't need gear wheels to be a clock And narratives are not just things we find in novels. These kinds of approaches can be useful uh, for teaching, for teaching ourselves to see the world around us with fresh eyes and also for teaching in the classroom, especially if you're teaching a course in uh, the environmental humanities or if you have units on the critical study of time or of culture. Students tend to engage very passionately with time. And once they've had some practice Thinking about diverse representations of time, they can, of course, find their own examples of cultural or literary or ecological forms of time. And that the practice of reimagining time can and should expand beyond the classroom. Susie O'Brien at McMaster University here in Canada has really delighted her students by asking them to develop personal time experiments, where each student chooses a way to engage with time in an unexpected or unfamiliar way. I adapted this exercise in an undergraduate seminar and one student decided to adopt the pre-industrial practice of sleeping in two segments at night with a period of wakefulness in between. Uh, She was then able to write about how The experiment had freed her from certain temporal assumptions, but also uh, created tensions in the clash between different approaches to time. Her roommate didn't like the experiment. So these projects can be contextualized through all kinds of critical and theoretical readings, such as Hartmut Rose's book on social acceleration, uh, Sarah Sharma's book, In the Meantime, or David Farrier's Footprints, which was featured on one of your talks. The COVID 19 lockdown has created a forced experiment in using time differently. Maybe this will come up more uh, during our discussion in a couple of minutes, but the, the pandemic has thrown assumptions of time out the window, both in terms of daily routines and in terms of l- larger cultural visions of progress. The pandemic requires us to use our temporal imaginations differently, and it emphasizes what critical time studies has often recognized: that experiences of time are marked by inequities, privilege, and power. Time, as ever, is an expression of power and powerlessness. It is both imagination and reality. And I'll just finish by reading a couple of paragraphs from the end of the book. Energy policies, news articles, advertisements, and novels all circulate within the deep and roiling ocean of ideologies of time. In enabling us to read, evaluate, and reshape the visions of time embedded within all forms of cultural and literary narratives, eco-critical time studies plays an important role in the projects now inevitably intertwined of cultural analysis and ecological survival. As we encounter the diverse stories that surround us, we must recognize those moments when a text has something to teach us about natural and cultural time. And we must also embrace those moments when we need to become the teachers. A critical eye that moves freely back and forth between one form of representation and another is well positioned to embrace the complexity of these seemingly routine encounters. This is what it means to have an everyday literacy of the temporal imagination. Narratives, like clocks, are political And malleable, artisanal, and ordinary. They can govern our lives without us really noticing. The essence of narrative is that it structures time. And if we are going to think critically about time, we need to think critically about narratives. As the world groans and crumbles, as new life and creative energies spring forth, one thing remains constant every story is a time socialization story. Every narrative has something to say about our encounters with time, and the process of thoughtful reading can discern which forms of time might hold together in a diverse and fragile world. Every story is a clock, and we must tell the time every day. Thank you so much.
2: Great. Thank you, Paul. That was, that was good. Interesting. Um... And I mean, time has also been very much in our mind as we run this this series of talks. And situated here in Norway, uh, we don't have to consider like while moving to online platform, many ways frees us from space in that we can involve people from the entire world. We cannot involve them all at the same time because if if you're in the U.S., you're not in the same area or time zone, the same day cycle as the Australians. So we, in a way, we have to pick our audience. We notice that when when switching between different people, uh, so yeah, time time is certainly also interesting in that way. Uh, I was wondering a bit before we start a question. So if people have questions, you should write a note. We'll uh, uh, call on you them. But just to start us off, um, if if you have thought about or can say something based on your expertise in this this area, then about the the. The meeting of time scales in a way in this calls for action on environmental crisis now. I mean, we we see that people said like, oh, we have 10 years to act or if it's too late, then it's too late. Uh, we have five years to act. We need to act now. And so on. This setting of, I mean, sometimes scientific, sometimes it feels arbitrary. Uh, Uh, deadlines for acting on ongoing processes that basically range from deep time to I mean longer environmental processes. Uh, Do you do you talk about such things in your book or do you have something to say about that?
1: Yeah thanks for the question I mean um, the the sense of uh, how we need to act quickly on climate change uh, really you know shapes uh, so much of the way we talk about the environment and Um, you know, the COVID-19 situation has been this incredible rapid social change. And, you know, one of the things is that um, that situation might invite, uh, you know, the, the risk of a kind of confirmation bias where people who want to see fast action on climate change might look at the lockdown and say, I knew it all along, fast social change is possible. Um, whereas people who want to resist climate action might look at the same situation and say, I knew it, fast social change destroys the economy. So uh, we need a, you know, a, a nimbleness of the imagination to sort of sort through uh, the choices and consequences we have. And hopefully at least uh, the situation can serve as a kind of opening up of time, a new, a new sense of, of temporal imagination. But you know the really critical thing, from uh, you know from the perspective of the kind of work that I do, is that if we're going to uh, you know free up our expectations of of what time can mean, it has to come with an understanding that time operates as a as a form of power. Um, so you know even during you know during the lockdown, um, yes it's true expectations of time have been shattered, but it hasn't happened equally. So for some people the lockdown has meant unemployment. you know, complete change to, uh, to daily routines and even the sense of, you know, if, if you lose your job and you lose your daily structure, it affects your own sense of your identity. Um, but then again, for people who work in jobs that have been designated essential, uh, the experience of time is very different. It is marked by, you know, facing hazards on a daily basis, depending on where you, where you live and, and the jobs designated essential, uh, you know, that our low paid jobs are often held disproportionately by women or people of color. Um, so, you know, the, the time of the lockdown is not not a single thing, it might be characterized by boredom for someone and panic uh, for someone else, you know, um, people are, are watching Netflix all day or maybe they're panicked about being evicted from their homes. So, um, and then also in terms of the, the speed or pacing uh, at which we act, you know, um, the economy wants to get things moving again after the lockdown, there's a, a sense of, uh, you know, capitalism, but also individuals who need, you know, paychecks to survive, we need to get the businesses running again, um, and that, could, that, that sense of a need uh, to rush might be in tension with uh, the, the requirements of, you know, public health officials for a longer lockdown. So uh, just like in a lot of situations, there's, there's a tension between moving quickly or moving slowly, um, but it's not a simple tension. And because, uh, because it affects people in such unequal ways, it's important to see it not just as a choice between fast and slow, but as uh, time operating as uh, a form of power.
2: Good, so Dolly had a question too.
0: Yes, um, thank you very much. One of the things that strikes me about time, um, having grown up and lived in the US, and then I moved to Norway, is how, um, how much the sun plays a role in how we, how we actually react to time, even though the clock says something. It doesn't feel the same. And it really struck me moving to Norway because in the north, of course, we have such long days in the summer. So right now, as we approach um, the, the solstice, we're going to have... Um, You know, the sun here won't set until 11.30 at night, Um, you know, and it's rising far before I'm awake. Uh, Versus in the winter when the day is is very short that the sun is actually up and your body reacts to that. Um, So you tend to, in the summer, not be tired, Um, you know, until very, very late. Uh, You wake up very early. And then the winter, vice versa. You're just, you're tired and you don't want to get up and you go to sleep rather early. So I was wondering what, um, how you found, uh, you know, the solar time and and sun factors into both our own thinking, but, you know, and the environment and where those two kind of come together.
1: Yeah, a really good question. Um, You know, uh, Kevin Berth is an anthropologist who talks about some of that, uh, some of those ideas that. Um, you know the way we encounter time in even in terms of sunrise and sunset again it 's not the same for everyone. It depends on location, our clocks and you know global infrastructures almost in a way uh, operate as though the earth is flat as though this kind of a universal experience but um you know yeah we're we 're living creatures on a strange tilted uh, planet, and uh, these these things uh, uh create a lot of differences you know um caribou, arctic caribou, uh, you know, they go through this as well. And um, so, you know, studies have found that uh, they have to change their sleeping patterns. You know, when the sun is up uh, a huge number of hours throughout the day, they don't have so much uh, a circadian clock. They sort of nap at different times throughout the day. And uh, there's some evidence that they have almost a circannual clock, some kind of annual uh, biological clock that regulates their behavior. But there's all all the the scientists who search for uh, an internal clock basically keep arriving at the realization that there's no single internal clock. It's more of a complex, um, you know, series of overlapping patterns. And when we, you know, the the ways that we interact with that, of course, means that the experience of the, the sunrise and sunset is also happening at the same time that we've got Work schedules and alarm clocks, and um, you know the the supposed 24/7 society. And again, it's going to affect everybody differently. Actually, I mentioned uh, Sarah Sharma's book. In the meantime, temporality and cultural politics. Really, really good book, uh, worth checking out. So she does things, uh, for example, she she did interviews with um, taxi drivers because she wants to challenge the idea that. Um, you know the world is speeding up social social acceleration is making everything faster and her response is that well the, you know there's some truth to that but it doesn't work that way for everybody so taxi drivers for example have to work um you know throughout the night uh in order for you know high-speed business travelers to get to the airport at all hours of the night and so um we don't necessarily align ourselves with the uh, sunrise and sunset, um, and it works out, it works out differently. And so, you know, a book a book like uh, Sarah Sharma's can help uh, investigate some of those nuances.
2: So I see Verity had a question. Um... But she hasn't typed it yet, there it is. Okay, so uh, I'm just gonna read this then. So picking up on what Fnana asked a few moments ago, I was wondering whether you've found different approaches for notions of time that are harder for humans to conceptualize such as deep time. Do they require different kinds of metaphor or imaginative leaps or more?
1: Mm. Different approaches of time that are harder con- to conceptualize such as deep time. A really, really great question. Um, part of the, the real challenge, I think, is recognizing that there's a great diversity of times um, because in, uh, you know, in, in the study of time or in everyday life, there's kind of a temptation to make blanket statements like, like the one that, you know, the world is speeding up. And there's really compelling evidence that a lot of things are subject to social acceleration. But, uh, it, um, you know, the, the important thing in terms of, conceptualizing things that are difficult is that we have to remember that there are multiple forms of time out there um, both in ecosystems and in uh, human societies so you know for example uh, coral reefs are being bleached and the, the difficulty for the coral is that the water is becoming warmer and more acidic at a pace that they can't keep up with And so scientists are trying to find ways to accelerate the evolution of the corals, to help the corals move faster to catch up to the rapidly changing water. Um, And every little part of the ecosystem that we look at is going to have different temporalities operating. you know, when people ask the question "What is nature?" Kate Soper has has a book called "What Is Nature." Uh, it's it's uh, almost a hopelessly complex question because it's not one thing; it's many, many things. And so, if we ask a question such as "What is you know, natural time?", um, the response has to be the same that it's not one thing but many, many things. And so, and and if if uh, ecological time is many, many things operating in many different ways, then there are many ways in which they can become uh, broken or damaged or changed. And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, David Farrier's book, Footprints, he's really interested in sort of the long-term and deep time. And that that, I think that is one way that uh, the imagination becomes stretched. Um, and, you know, so I, I talk about that a little bit, but for my purposes, The real stretch of the imagination is understanding the the diversity and uh, uh, intermingling of the temporalities around us. It's a a really great question.
2: All right, so Ellen has a question. Uh, I'll unmute you. All right, you're on.
3: Okay, am I here? Excellent, so in picking up some of the the questions that have been asked of of other authors in this series, um, I have a question about the writing of this. Mm -hmm. Time, as as you've shown, it's such a malleable and pervasive metaphor. How do you deal with that as an author without constantly saying it? Or do you? <laughs> like, how do how do you deal with with engaging a metaphor in a meaningful way to where the audience focuses on the changing metaphor rather than constantly on oh, time's a metaphor, oh, time's a metaphor. If that really makes sense.
1: Question. Yeah, really good question. Um, yeah, the you know the process of writing you know is uh, it's kind of an isolating process. So it's interesting to to talk about that with someone. But, you know, so in the, you know, in the introduction, I sort of lay out the case for how we, the way we understand time inevitably involves metaphor. It's not that, it's not that poets are, um, you know, trying to, trying to impose a vision of time that involves metaphor. The everyday way that we talk about time always involves metaphor. And so, you know, like I was just talking in the previous response that there's this huge diversity of times out there. How do we even talk about it or write about it? And so. Uh, the way that I did it is I divided the book into five clocks. So instead of chapter one, chapter two, it's clock one, clock two. Um, So, um, you know, chapter one is the earth looking at the uh, diverse forms of time on the planet. Uh, Chapter two is the growler. A growler is a, uh, a grizzly bear, polar bear hybrid. Um, So it used to be the case that, uh, (laughs) that, uh, Grizzly bears and polar bears can breed with one another, but they usually don't encounter one another because the grizzly bears are still hibernating when the polar bears are out on the ice. Now uh, the, the timing of the seasons is changing. So the polar bears and grizzly bears uh, interact with one another more. And so we have, we have uh, rollers, hybrid bears, that uh, are not fully adapted for either uh, form of ecosystem or either form of life. And so what does it mean when we have um, you know, a, a creature that is both a new creature and an adaptation of existing creatures that doesn't seem to fit the timing patterns of a changing climate. Um, some of the later chapters or clocks are more about uh, cultural experiences of time. So I, f- I found that was a useful way to sort of uh, focus the discussion. And, you know, an- another hope that I have with this book is that people will use it as a starting point if if you're using it in a course for example um i i've I've given five what i call clocks five chapters of the book but many more are possible um so so the hope is not just that you know these are the ones that i presented but where else can we go from there thanks for the question
2: i i have another question down so i'm wondering um the the larger Anthropocene debate there is of course all this debate about when does the Anthropocene start but I rarely see discussions of in a way the nature of time in the Anthropocene Uh, do you have any observations on that I mean where where would you uh, place yourself in this debate too?
1: Right well the Anthropocene is a big topic and you know Quite a few scholars are, you know, not totally happy with the word Anthropocene because it sort of suggests a universal experience of time or universal blame for uh, for what's happening. Um, you know, quite a few people have talked about that. Another issue is that the, the future apocalypse scenarios, you know, the drowned cities and droughts and storms and fires uh, that are sort of associated with uh, you know, the, the future of climate breakdown, well, for a lot of people, those kinds of events are already a present day reality. And it sort of d- depends on who you are and where you live. Um, and so uh, to, to imagine that, uh, uh, you know, certain things belong to the future, certain things belong to the present, it sort of breaks down sometimes uh, under scrutiny. Um there's one poet I talked about in the book. Um, his name is, is Christian Book. His, his last name is spelled B O K, pronounced Book. Uh, he's working on this project called the Xenotext, where uh, he's, he's taught himself genetics. And he's got, even though he's a poet, he's got funding to work in genetics laboratories. And he's been, he's been inserting sonnets into the DNA of bacteria. And so far, he's managed to implant the poems into E. coli but his ultimate plan is to implant these genetic sonnets into um, a bacteria that can survive uh, all kinds of uh, horrible effects of radiation and heat and uh, theoretically would live until the sun explodes. And so his idea is that he's going to be the poet uh, who lasts uh, forever because these bacteria cannot be destroyed. They will continue to replicate and reproduce the poems as they do, and so he's going to be the poet, uh, you know, who will truly show the poetry lasts forever. And you know, it's, whether whether he'll actually pull it off, I have no idea. Um, but it, in a way, it's 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 almost a it's almost an image of what we're creating creating for the future. That you know, some people have pointed at his poems and looked, at, you know, looking at sort of the details of the poems and noticed well, there's some really troubling gender implications in the way that you've designed these poems and if that's the case then uh, uh, these poems within this indestructible bacteria are going to reinforce the patriarchy until the sun explodes. Um, So there's there is there a sense of responsibility to what what it is that we're creating but then on the other hand we've we've created the more uh sort of uh widely understood markers of the Anthropocene, whether it's nuclear isotopes or layers of, of chicken bones, domestic chicken bones. And in a sense, you know, if those things last into deep time, then we almost don't need uh, the fancy genetic poetry because we've already got the poetry of the Anthropocene.
2: Yeah, thanks. So Isaac uh, has a question. If there's time, he wrote. I think we can <laughs> safely say we have time.
4: Let's see. I'm very, very glad to hear we have time. (laughs) Hi, Paul. Hi, everyone. My name is Isaac Stoddard. I'm a PhD researcher at Uppsala University, um, focusing on climate and energy transitions. And I guess I've also done a lot of work uh, previously in the intersection between art and science. So really, uh, uh, thank you so much for your presentation, Paul. And I look forward to reading your book um, eventually. My question is, I guess, I work a lot with sort of chronological conceptions of time in my sort of uh, uh, climate research, uh, worked a lot with carbon budgets that, uh, as we heard earlier, really show how few years we have left if we want to live up to the, the Paris Agreement, for example. Um, and in that work, I've come to realize also this, the shortcomings, of course, of that that conceptualization time. I'm currently reading a book by um, Suzanne Gerlach, who's a um, professor of, of, of French literature, I believe, uh, in Berkeley. Um, And she's written a book about uh, who early, early 20th century philosopher. And I guess I was curious to hear if you've, you've sort of uh, considered his work and his, his concept of duration um, in your, in your, in your writing. I guess I'll just have to read your book to find out, but I'd be curious to hear if you have any specific thoughts on Bergson's sort of um, conceptions of time, uh, if you know about his uh, thoughts on time. And also in a sense, I guess, how, how he, um, according to Isabel Stengers and others sort of, um, became uh, sort of anticipated modern physics, I guess in quantum mechanics in their different understanding of time from sort of mechanical notion of time in, in more classical physics. So' I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts on that Thanks: Okay, thanks very much um, there, there was a
1: bit of a connection problem there, but I think I, I think I caught the question. So Bergson's um, notion of duration, you know it has to do with the fact or the, the example that um, when we experience music uh, it's not enough to say that there's a note, uh, there's another note, there's another note. The the way that we experience the music has to do with the relationship of the notes through time, um, and so we, we experience time not in individual discrete moments, but as, as more of a flow. That's what I recall. I mean, the work that I'm doing is you know, there. Are, there are endless perspectives for studying time. Time is studied from you know every possible discipline, every possible vantage point, and so I've sort of chosen. Uh, the ones that I find most useful, and for me, I'm mostly interested in uh, the politics of of time um, so uh, you know a bit a bit less in terms of uh, philosophy of time, although you know again, it depends on the approach um, uh, so I guess I would say I'm more interested in diverse experiences of time so you know i I read things like um, time use surveys here in Canada um, that show, for example that um, You know, they get people to measure uh, how they use time throughout the day. And it shows that, uh, you know, women on average have less free time than men do. And then if you look at the surveys uh, sequentially over the years, um, it shows that everyone, everyone's free time is shrinking because we're all working longer hours. But it's shrinking faster for women than it is for men. So, I mean, I don't know if that gets exactly to your question, but for me, it's a matter of choosing you know, which, which studies or perspectives of time are sort of, you know, going to do the work that I'm particularly interested in.
2: All right. So we have one question Will probably be the last one then from Eric. So he typed it in here. So he was intrigued by your analogy about narratives being a type clock. Uh, and anyone if you have any tips for helping students, including non-majors with minimal familiarity with reading literary works to get up to speed on both literary critical methods while learning challenging interdisciplinary content from the environmental sciences and humanities? What works to help students learn ecological lessons without sacrificing the narrative complexity of the primary liter- literary works? I guess you could you know, build on that and think, You know, have you taught your book, this material, to your students and how has that worked?
1: Mm-hmm. Really great question. And- there, uh, there's sort of an intersection of a few different disciplines there. Um, so there's there's a lot to draw from. Um, you know, in terms of studies of time, I think I mentioned Hartman Rose's book, Social Acceleration, that kind of study is a really, really comprehensive study of uh, how does social acceleration work um, in terms of the big picture. You know, I mentioned, mentioned uh, Sarah Sharma's book. When it comes to the environment, um, Uh, You know, there's uh, Rob Nixon's book on slow violence uh, and the environmentalism of the poor. Um, Gosh, you know, uh, Barbara Adam is one of the best known time scholars who sort of presents foundational information about how time um, operates in terms of inequities and diversity. She's got a book on uh, what she calls timescapes. Uh, sort of a parallel to landscapes. If, uh, she, you know, she offers ways to help us imagine time, especially in terms of, um, you know, she's writing in the context of uh, the UK in the 1990s and environmental problems um, in that sense. Familiarity with reading, literary literary critical methods. And so I think it, it comes down to which which disciplinary approaches you're most interested in. So, my, you know, uh, my book is it's sort of, uh, blends critical reading practices as you would use with with things like poetry and novels, um, so I think it can give a sense of how those kinds of strategies can be useful. You know, talking about actual literature, but also then expanding those to talk about everyday forms of narratives that we encounter uh, on a daily basis. So there's a lot of material out there. We, you know, you can even email me afterwards, and you might have some uh, some books in mind as well. Um, But I think, you know, if you're bringing it into the classroom, students really, really like it when they get to do uh, a a project that goes outside the classroom, like like the time experiments I was talking about, you know, tell tell the students here, you know, here, now that we've read these sort of theoretical or critical uh, readings on time, go out there and imagine uh, a new way for you to interact with time and then come back and, uh, you know, use some of these concepts to tell us how it worked out. Um, Eric is having trouble unmuting. I think Eric wants to say
2: something. They said earlier he was in a noisy place. I can unmute him if he wants to chime in.
3: Yeah. Oh, thank you. I can email you for more um, about this some more. Um, The the Rob Nixon example was was interesting to me just because the kind of challenge I was talking about was just, teaching at Stavanger, for example, uh, we have just, you know, a very short amount of time in the modules to do the sort of eco-critical unit and still try to cover everything else. So I, I find just by, you know, when we have in a three-hour period, inevitably like reading the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism material from Rob Nixon's in there and Timothy Morton's in there and the usual suspects, by the time we even get through that, there's not enough time then to go through the primary literary works and the the challenge i have this is a larger one i can talk to you more about it's just sort of how you keep from having the students then just kind of look for examples from the theoretical material and kind of point to it in the literary texts which sort of reduces the complexity and what strategies strategies you have for that but um I, i don't want to take up any any more extra time i can email you about that or something
1: I guess my my experience as a reader is that uh if I can find a small number of readings that really impact me I I tend to prefer that over the attempt to uh to read you know comprehensive, com- comprehensively comprehensively and, and I I think you know depending on the students if, if you can find a couple of readings that I think really resonate then you know to me give, given the constraints that that we've got um you know that might resonate more than trying to cover everything um, getting you know getting students to develop their own original examples you know uh, sometimes in class discussions, uh, talking about possible examples but uh, it's, you know, it's going to depend on the student and how you how you uh, uh, engage with them as well <laughs> yeah Good question
0: all right um, yeah, I think that what this what it really shows you as we have uh talked through here and the kind of comment that Eric made was how many times he used the word time, right? How many times he used the word time? Um, mm-hmm. that, that we do, I think you're right, have it so built in to the way that we have discourse, the way we think about our uh, the boxes in which we operate. Um, we tend to put these kind of clock times Um, on things, you know, we have them for so many hours, or we have them in this year, or we do. So it's interesting to really reflect upon the way we ourselves do this, um, and structure our thinking about time. Um, Let's see, Aster had a question, asked, well, perhaps we're out of time, um, but we can take that. (laughs) It seems to me that in your title, isn't just about time, but especially about the clock. Um, So why did you choose the clock as about time rather than, I mean, I know, for example, as an example that uh, some people have written on circadian rhythm, right? That, that could be your thing that you're writing about. So the fact that you chose clock, um, what did it do for you as, a, as an author?
1: Yeah, really good question. Um, Aster, I saw a profile of your your research online. Um, it, it looks really interesting, looking at uh, ecological rhythms, and I think energy—the uh, way we encounter uh, energy policies—that looks looks really good. So thanks for your question. Um, you know, the, the clock, the uh, the image of the clock is ubiquitous. We have them all around us. We have them on our phones, on our walls, on our computers, and on our desks. Um, and it's 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 so ubiquitous that it it's, it really, really is the dominant icon for our encounters with time. And so um, I wanted to play with that a little bit. You know, we all all think we know what the clock is. We use the clock a thousand times a day, Um, but a clock doesn't just have to be something with, you know, hands that rotate on a face or the the digits that display. Um, There can be, and this is again, why I drew from Michelle Bastion's definition of a clock. A clock can be, can be sort of what we make of it anything that um, expresses change or allows us to to um, even identify what's important to us in terms of what's around us so you know the clock is already a central metaphor that we use uh every day for encountering time and so i wanted to see what else can that what else can that metaphor uh do for us and i hope that resonates
0: Thank you so much, Paul Paul Hübner, talking about his new book, Nature's Broken Clocks, Reimagining Time in the Face of the Environmental Crisis. Um, We're so glad that you could all join us today um, for this discussion, and we hope that you'll join us again uh, in the future. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.